And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, it's been a very long week for me. And as I was testing the sound here, uh, I noticed that my voice is showing the strains of the week. And by the way, it, it, it wasn't uh, about the big sell-off in the market. Uh, that, uh, other than suggesting I must and should address that in this podcast, uh, it was because we spent a few days in Mexico and uh, in the process ended up getting severely dehydrated uh, ending up as we were about to board a plane to uh, bring my wife back for an operation that was scheduled uh, and, by the way, was successful. Uh, but just prior to boarding, my body actually decided it, it was a time to sit down and relax. And and uh, it was a, a bad moment because... Uh, my body just quit. The energy was gone. The sweats, the sweat was just rolling off my head. And uh, um, and my wife, when she found me, said uh, I was this weird shade of uh, of gray or something that, that frightened her. But they took me to the hospital, and I got patched up, and we stayed overnight. And then we came up to Seattle to uh, take care of my wife and get her uh, surgery done. And again, as I mentioned, it was, it was uh, successful. Uh, it is interesting how when you have all these moving parts in your life, uh, what's going on in the stock market, even when it's, when it's as uh, emotional, I guess, uh, as, this week, uh, as this week was for many, um, but what takes the priority? Which, by the way, is one of the nice things about having an advisor. Because I don't worry about this stuff. If there's something that needs to be done, and as many of you know, uh, half of my hour money is market-timed, and uh, all mechanically, but I don't take care of all the mechanical systems. Somebody else does, and I know that we're sitting on lots of cash uh, in that part of the portfolio, anyhow. But um, it, it, the other part of the portfolio that's buy and hold, I've got the right amount of fixed income there. I'm not worried about that. Uh, so my worries were not about the market, uh, but my worries were about all these personal things that uh, is probably the, the way life really is. Um, the it ended, everything ended the week so well, even though my voice is shot and uh, I'm not real high energy, I, as I'm feeling. I'm excited about this podcast because I like the topic, and I'll, I'll address that in just a second. But I had a wonderful two-hour meeting with Rich Buck as we laid out the new book that we are uh, working on uh, regarding the two funds for life. And, uh, and I'm, I really am enthusiastic about what that book will accomplish. I continue to have opportunities to sit down with young people who, even though they have money in a 401k, in their 
late 30s, even though they're in their late 30s, money in a 401k, they still don't know what a mutual fund is. And so a target date fund is, is way off of the, uh, uh, out, of their, uh, out of their universe. But there's some, there, I just think there is some great work to be done with this next book. And it must be focused first and foremost on the people who don't even know what a mutual fund is. Uh, they, have, uh, they have a lot of needs and we want to try to help them. I do want to address this last week in that um, um, certainly uh, the market has, and this is one of the challenges I think with Trump, is uh, if Trump's having a bad market, a bad day, I, I, I wouldn't put it past him to, to make a decision uh, about how we run our country and our economy that would make the market go up for a while. And then he might do something that'll make the market go down for a while. He, he's just a very different uh, politician than we've seen before. And, uh, uh, and you can see that at, at, at some level in the market and all the volatility from uh, all of these uh, major policies and, and, uh, and sometimes uh, something that appears to be going to be very good, like maybe making a better deal with China and then all of a sudden, well, no, it's not a better deal and the market's going up and down and that's hard on investors. Well, it's hard on investors, I suspect, that are close to or in retirement, where all of this volatility can be unsettling and and make people question whether uh, they've made the right decision as to how much they should expose themselves to equities, uh, even though they may be in their 60s or 70s and have many, many years to live. Uh, and being age 75 myself, I certainly know this feeling. It would be nice not to let that part of our life drive our life emotionally and create worry. The whole idea of this process is to have worked hard, saved, grown the money prudently, and then not had to worry about it. But there are a lot of people that do worry about it. A lot of people worry so much about it that they won't put any money in the stock market. Period. And uh, uh, and I want to I want to address uh, this feeling of not wanting to be in the market because somebody in your life may feel that way, and we need to figure out what is it we can say to these people that will convince them that it may be one of the biggest, certainly, financial mistakes of their life. And if we know somebody in that feeling that way, it isn't unusual. And when we have unsettled markets, I know what happens. Those people, those people who had taken that position before the, the big decline in the market, they say, yeah, see, there's how it is. That's exactly what I was worried about. I mean, you people that have all your money in the stock market, you go ahead, but you can see, looks to me like you're about to have your hat handed to you. And so they roll along, uh, not 
not creating the, the what I think is the right attitude about investing for the long term. And many of these people are very young people. There's I just read an article by a, a Jeff Rose, and he makes the, the comment about the 2017 Gallup poll that showed that uh, only 54% of Americans are invested in the stock market, and that is down from 60 Two percent in 2008, uh, and that, by the way, in 2008 before uh, the the financial uh, meltdown. So it, the suggestion is about 46 plus percent don't invest, and many of those may be because they don't have any money to invest. I, but uh, I even think that is oftentimes it's a matter of of attitude and commitment. But uh, I think when markets start heading down, the number of people who have decided that, nah, not a good idea, uh, is, it's going to go up. And uh, so what I would like to address are, uh, as this Jeff Rose uh, lists in his particular article, he talks about what he calls the lies, six lies about investing that people uh, believe, and uh, I'll, I'll undoubtedly stretch that to maybe as many as ten, depending on how long-winded I get. But um, these lies, or these myths, or whatever they we want to call them, uh, these really have a lot of of uh, financial impact. In fact, in many cases, devastating impact. Uh, on on investors in the long run. And I, I think it's a good thing to address now because those lies become bigger and bigger and bigger in investors' minds in a falling market. You know, the reality is for all of the, uh, of the discussion about the term fake news, whether you believe it is or you believe it isn't, uh, the reality is, is that a lot of what we learn is fake. A lot of what we learn is, in fact, uh, more of a myth than a reality. A lot of the things that we believe, in, in a sense, are lies. Now, uh, it's easier today to be impacted by lies, probably, than ever before. But we live a life of fake news. Uh, some would say we're taught fake history. Uh, we certainly would agree, I think, that in the uh, effort for for uh, cigarette tobacco companies uh, to sell tobacco to people, in the effort for the alcohol companies to sell alcohol to people, that uh, that. All of this, all of these attempts to try to get people to do things that may not really be in their best interest, at some level, it's fake advertising, or it's fake news, or it's 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 incomplete information. Many of us are old enough to remember the the, the pictures uh, in advertisements in in popular magazines like Life, and you see a picture of a doctor in the office uh, stethoscope around the neck, 
and and having maybe a child and a and a mother there. Uh, I assume it's the child they're they're there to look at, but. But the under there was the line that three out of four doctors uh, smoke uh, uh, Chesterfields. Maybe not, didn't necessarily say, I guess, that three out of four. But of the doctors who smoke, three out of four prefer Chesterfields. I mean, the, the, the image of a doctor in the office with a mother and a child and, a, and, the, and, and the attempt is to sell people cigarettes Maybe the word isn't fake advertising. Um, maybe there's a, a better way to 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 to, to call that out. Um, at, at some level, uh, having been somebody who's lost over four thousand pounds, I can say that that I was uh, uh, I was sold on fake diets. Uh, I think people make fake commitments, uh, and and certainly. The financial community uh, is famous for fake sales pitches. Again, may not fake the word "fake" may not be the right term, but but sales pitches that, at some level, it can be a, a lie of omission or a lie of, of of commission. And so, this is a reality of life. All of this fake information, and if we don't get it straight. Uh, can be a life changer. And I think, and so does uh, the fellow who writes this particular article that uh, that I read, uh, I, I think most of it, uh, when it comes to investing, most of the things that turn out to be myths or lies uh, have to do with the fear that comes from losing money. And so let's take uh, a handful of these of these uh, lies or myths and uh, see what we can do to turn people around. Uh, the first one is that investing is risky. Now, who can deny that investing is risky? Uh, it, it, is, it, it is highly risky. We, we know that stocks can not only go down, but we know that stocks can go out of business. The famous ones, probably Enron, and and in the Pacific Northwest, certainly the friend of the family, uh, Washington Mutual, uh, uh, going out of business, uh, just would not have been believed. And now we have Sears on the rocks, and and a company that was. Uh, uh, considered to be when I first came into the industry in the '60s, uh, an absolute, almost guaranteed way to make money for the long, uh, the, the long term. So yes, individually, stocks are very risky, and stocks can go down and stay down forever. But that's not the way that people should be investing. Investing in individual securities particularly the people who have this feeling that they, they really don't want to put money in the stock market, even if it is a good idea because you can lose, you can lose all your money. That's what they believe. And, uh, and the fact is that uh, over the long run, the risks are far, far greater if you don't invest in stocks than if you well, either 
uh, uh, put the money under the mattress or put it in the bank in a CD or put it in even in government bonds. Uh, we've taken a look at government bonds uh, going all the way back to the late 20s. And it is fascinating uh, to, to see what appears to be or is considered to be a safe investment, what the implications of that might be. Now, you may recall the table that shows one-year returns for large-cap blend and large-cap value, small-cap blend and small-cap value. Then it shows the 15-year returns. Then it shows the 40-year returns. Well, let's talk here, just to keep this simple, about the 40-year returns. Because we can look back and we can look at the best of years for short-term government bonds, for intermediate-term government bonds, and long-term government bonds. That data is available. And also something that's very interesting and important is the inflation that went along for those particular periods. So I know the very best 40-year period for short-term government bonds, and I know the worst. I mean, that's, it's, it's in the table. And in fact, we'll, we'll uh, um, in the coming weeks, we'll get that table up so you can take a look at it. But the, the very worst, the very worst 40-year period for the short-term government bonds, these are actually T-bills, uh, was from 1928 to 1967, the return was 1.6% a year. 1.6% a year. And the, uh, uh, and the inflation for that same period was 1.5%. So virtually inflation wiped out all of that particular period's profits, or almost all of it. Then we look at intermediate bonds. Now, intermediate bonds are going to have a little more volatility, and in theory, you should get a higher return. Now, intermediate bonds had their worst 40 years from 1930 to 1969, very similar to the short term. Intermediate term bonds compounded at 1.7%. But then you got to look at inflation for that particular period of time. And by just moving the table for a slightly different set of 40 years, the inflation rate was 2.9% a year. So all of a sudden, you're actually losing money. Now, I'm picking on the worst 40 years here because we have to prepare for the, for, for, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And, and, uh, and so I'm just looking at some really tough periods of time. But 40 years is a long time not to do well in something that you think is safe. So when we look at long-term bonds, the the worst 40 years was the period from 1941 to 1980. And during that period of time, the compound rate of return of long-term government bonds 
was 2.2%, more risky than intermediates, more risky than short-term government bonds, and a higher return. That is the good news. The bad news is inflation. Inflation was 3.4%. So you can invest someplace that, that you think is just super safe. And in fact, you're setting yourself up for the possibility of a catastrophic event. And, 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 and I want to I look at stocks uh, over some of these same periods. Because when you look at the returns of, of uh, long-term periods with stocks, in fact, let's, I, I don't know that I can tell you exactly uh, the years, but, but let's look here for a second. Bear with me here. Let me look at the worst 40 years for the S&P 500. The worst 40 years. Oh, and before we do that, let's talk about what you would have had uh, if you had put $5,000 a year away uh, into uh, these short-term bonds, intermediate bonds, long-term bonds, and compare that uh, to the equities. Uh, well, let's look here now at the worst 40 years for the S&P 500. And the worst 40 years was a compound rate of return of 8.9%. Now, this is going back to the same time in the late 20s as the results of the, uh, of the, of the bond returns. So, $5,000 a year over the worst 40 years in the S&P 500, this is consecutive years here, was, again, 8.9%, and that would have grown to be worth about $1.6 million, $1,640,000, to be almost exact. Now, if we looked at the worst 40 years, with the short-term government bonds, it would have grown to $270,000. Which means on the $200,000, 40 years, at $5,000 a year, you would have invested the same $200,000 as you did in the S&P 500. You made a profit of $70,000 as opposed to a profit of $1.44 million with the S&P 500. Now, remember the short-term government bonds, the safest in terms of volatility, uh, but the least productive. So if we go to the intermediate uh, bonds, uh, and the, the return there was 2.9%, that bumps the total return up to about $370,000. And it turns out that the long-term government bonds, their worst 40-year uh, periods was 2.2, and that would have been about $315,000. My point is this. The profit on the worst 40 years in the S&P 500, which of course means you have to put up with more volatility. That's the way stocks are. But that year 200000 the worst case was to end up with a profit 
of about $1.44 million. In the case of the short-term government bond, a profit of $70,000. With the intermediate-term government bond, a profit of $170,000. With the long-term government bond, a profit of $115,000. Now, when I talk about a catastrophic end result, certainly to the extent that somebody is, is, is trying to build for the future and have enough to retire, I don't think that the bonds are going to cut it. I don't think that CDs are going to cut it. And the huge risk, it is huge, and yet I don't think people really consider it as a likelihood. And it is a likelihood. I can't tell you the probabilities but let's say that you're a person who saves safely for that, that 40 years, and you put that money in bonds. And let's say that during that particular 40 years, inflation is not very high. And in fact, in those 40-year periods that bonds did poorly, they ended up having low, mostly low inflation. Not all, but mostly low inflation. But what happens? If after the 40 years that you've been safe and secure and never had to worry about running out of money because the stock market went to zero, what could happen is that after having saved that money for 40 years in a relatively calm inflationary environment, bam, you walk right into a retirement where for the next 30 years inflation is high. And the now it wouldn't all happen in one year. It wouldn't all happen in one year. And to make things even more complex, what would happen is that for the longer term, higher paying instruments that were conservative, those would be less volatile and be more attractive. Uh, and those are the very ones that you could likely lose a fair amount of money in. At the same time, the people in the stock market, I don't know how the stock market is going to be in a higher inflationary environment, but I can say in the past it's actually been, over time, pretty doggone good. So, this idea that investing is risky is true but not investing in the stock market is probably even more risky. A second big lie or myth is that if I invest in the stock market, I will lose all of my money. And we talked about that before. Yes, you can if you invest in individual securities. But if you invest in the S&P 500, and yes, when you invest in the S&P 500, I had the S&P 500 when Enron went broke. I had the, the, the uh, stocks in, in WAMU when it went broke. I didn't have it because I personally invested in it, but it was held in the index funds that, that my wife and I owned. So, yes, yes, you... Many companies, in fact, I, I have never counted the number of companies that went belly up since uh, I've been investing in the market. I mean, literally, it, it, it's probably hundreds, maybe even 
maybe even a thousand over my whole life of investing. But it's not about the individual companies. It's about the diversified portfolio. And that, historically, has been safe. Now, when you know that that can go down 50% and periodically does go down 50%, that does certainly not sound safe. On the other hand, if you're a 25-year-old and you're investing in the stock market and it's going down, guess what? You're buying shares of these wonderful companies at lower and lower prices. That's good news. The only people it's bad news to are people like me at age 75. I don't want to have all my money in the stock market when it goes down 50%. And I hope I live long enough to see the stock market go down 50% a couple more times. That's part of the process. But market declines can certainly be painful, painful to individuals who are at or in retirement. But not so for the young people that I I worry so about who, who believe that the stock market is risky and I'll lose all my money. And we shouldn't forget what Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people in the world, what he decided to tell the trustees that he would want them to do upon his death for his wife, and that is to put that money in broadly diversified S&P 500 index fund. That, and by the way, she's not a kid, obviously. And, uh, uh, and of course, when you have as much money as Warren Buffett has, uh, then you can afford to lose half of your money and still have more than you need. But most of us, when we retire, we really don't want to lose half of our money on the whole portfolio. And I think it's also important to know that these market crashes, like we had in in uh, uh, 2008, uh, we, had, we had a 50% decline in the S&P 500, uh, back in the 2000 through 2002, had the same thing in the 73, 74 uh, bear markets. Uh, those, those crashes, those declines uh, can last a couple of years, but, but they don't last forever. And in the, at, at least they have never have. Uh, and when we look at this last one we've gone through, that uh, happened in the 2008 and the early part of 2009. Uh, here we are a decade later with the market up, even with recent declines, almost 400%. But if you invest the way that every prudent investor I know, and I don't mean, by the way, uh, people who are giving advice to the wealthy. I'm talking about people who are in the know, experienced folks, we're trying to get people who don't have tons of money to build a, to build a portfolio so they can pay for a, a, a successful retirement uh, with, with financial freedom. We all want that for you. But if you invest uh, with almost any of their recommendations, it is never going to be so that you will have a chance to lose all of your money. And the third 
lie or myth is that investing is way too complicated. I just don't know enough to do it. I'm not qualified. I'd have to go to school somewhere to learn how to do this. You know, the fascinating part is that those people who simply invest in index funds of hundreds and thousands. My wife and I, we, we, we have a portfolio uh, of about 15,000 stocks. And all we have to do is own about 10 mutual funds, index funds, to own those 15,000 companies. I don't have to know anything about any of those companies. I don't have to worry when to sell any of those companies. And when I sell it, what to do with the money to put it back in the market. Sell one, buy another. You don't need to do that with index funds. You simply have a position in the future growth of the American economy through all of those companies. Trust me, some of those people who are going to look like honorable people may turn out to be crooks. Now, there are a lot of people that believe that what happened at, at, at Enron, uh, even though it was the seventh largest, seventh largest public company in the United States, all of a sudden they find out the people who are running the company might be doing it illegally. Yeah, that's a risk that you take. But you own so many companies, but you don't have to figure out how they're doing. You don't have to read their balance sheet or their income statement. You don't have to check on competition. You don't have to do anything except, except, literally, except to have the discipline to keep saving and oftentimes saving at a time when the market is not fun, when it's going down. But remember, when it's going down, that's good because you get a chance to buy more shares at lower prices. Now, I, right now, right now, we're working, as I mentioned earlier, on this book that will explain to mostly to young people, but to, but there could even be some 40-year-old people, maybe even some 50-year-old people that are really new to investing. It will, it will be helpful to them as well. But the bottom line is that there is not one thing that's complicated. And the beauty, and the beauty of this, you could call an 800 number and you could say, I would like to have this S&P 500 fund. Can you tell me what I need to do? And they will show you exactly where the form is to fill out and where to send it. And you will then be invested in one of the most highly regulated securities in, in our country because mutual funds are in many ways even more highly regulated than banks. Now, the, the, the next lie, myth, whatever we want to call it here, 
it's kind of like the last one, but but it it's there's a slight difference here, and that is that investing is time consuming, and that it's going to become the focus of your life. I really do believe that one of the reasons that a lot of people don't invest is because they don't want to be ruled by money. The reason I know they have money to invest, even people who have very little money do have money to invest. But I'm sure you have read that people who are poor on average give more money to charity than people who are rich, percentage-wise. Now, when I hear that, I'm not saying that they should invest instead of giving money away, but I know they're making decisions with their money about what feels right for them. And I, I, and I wonder if they have the, uh, the, the ability to, to put money, give money away. Uh, could they, if they wanted to, take part of that money and to put it into a long-term investment that would give them some financial freedom when they're older. And I think probably a lot of those people, the reason they, they don't do it is because they don't want to have money ruling their life. It isn't time-consuming. You can invest as professionally as anybody you know and not spend more than 10 minutes a year. How do you do that? Well, one thing you do is you find these very good, low-cost, broadly diversified funds inside of your 401k. You tell the people who run the 401k to take 5% or 3% or 10 or 15% of what you make and just put it in there every paycheck. You don't even have to be involved. And if you do it in the right kind of a mutual fund, they even decide when you should start getting more conservative. They'll do that for you. There is virtually nothing for you to do. So if you think that investing is going to consume your life and that you won't have times for friends and families and charities and all of those things that are important to you, you just forget about that because it's not going to take any time. Okay, that was a lie. That was fake news right there. Yes, it is going to take a little bit of time, but it's so little that I certainly wouldn't see it as a reason not to do it. And myth lie number five. A lot of people believe that you have to have a lot of money to start making money. That if you're really going to get things going, that you got to accumulate a bunch of money so that you can make some, some plays, you can buy some stocks or do something impressive. The reality is that that discipline of saving, even if it's a little bit, is important to get started as absolutely soon as you possibly can. It still blows me away to this day 
that if I can put away a dollar a day for a newborn child, and I do that for 65 years, well, maybe I do it for the first 21 years and they take it from there, but a dollar a day, and if that investment gets 8%, at age 65, they'll have about $675,000. Now, 8% is a likely return uh, of, a mute, of a conservative, what I'll call a conservative mutual fund, uh, for 65 years. There's lots of evidence of that. Uh, on the other hand, there's also lots of evidence that it, it is historically been easy to make a 10% compound rate of return. Now, when we put away a dollar a day for 65 years, it grows into 1.8 million. And if you know where to put money, where there's a legitimate chance to make 12%, and if you've followed my work at all, or the work of a lot of other people that that uh, discuss small cap value, at 12%, a dollar a day would turn into $4.8 million. You do not need a lot of money to get started. Now, there was a time when in order to invest in a mutual fund, you probably had to have $1,000. Today, you could invest in a, a good Schwab fund, uh, a, a fund that is that is uh, uh, built to be broadly diversified, even managed to address how old you are and how much risk you should have exposure to, but are called target date funds. But the minimum size investment is $100 to start. $100. And the amazing thing is that $100 gives you the same service, the same returns as the person with a million dollars or $10 million or $100 million in the same mutual fund. That's the beauty of the mutual fund. Another one of the, of the lies. And again, that word lies seems stronger than it needs to be. Uh, but something that people really do believe that uh, is, in, in fact, in some way, just simply uh, not true. And this one, uh, you may not exactly agree with me, but here is what a lot of people say. Uh, they'll be reading right now, right now. You could be putting money in the market. No, 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 not a good time to put money in the market. Well, the market is in for a big sell-off. In fact, you should get out of the market right now and then get back in after the sell-off is over. It's obvious, people will say. Well, it isn't obvious. Now, the reality is that there, there isn't anybody who can tell you where the market is going to go. Nobody. Nobody. And they don't know when the market's going to peak out, and when it heads down, they don't know how far down it's going. It is common to have a 10% reduction in the value of the market once a year. 
every four or five years, it's on average normal to lose 30%. And those crashes of over 50%, they don't come often, but as I said before, there was one in the 73-74 period. Uh, there was one in the uh, in uh, uh, in 2000 through 2002 and 2007 through 2009. Uh, and in fact, in one day, in one day in 1987, the market market went down uh, over twenty uh, percent. So, um, yes, there are going to be some big declines, but nobody knows when they're coming. And the people, and here's the problem, the people who think they know, or maybe you're listening to somebody that sounds like they know, you don't know they don't know, they sure sound convincing, and you do something because of what they say. You are now headed down the street of what is called market timing. And you're going to improve your performance by getting in and out of the market. And the worst market timing system I've ever seen is the ICSIA strategy. I-C-S-I-A. I can't stand it anymore. And that's the point at which people, in a sense, become emotionally, emotionally burdened with the unbelievable belief that the market's going down, and probably not a little bit, but a whole lot. In fact, you might even say, you might even say, I think it's going down 50%, but when it's down 40, I'm going to put this money back in the market. And it does go down, and it goes down until it's down 30, 35. But you're waiting for 40. But then it turns around and goes up and keeps going up for decades. That happens. And you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for that sell-off that you just felt so strongly about. You don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. So what we try our best to do is to invest in a way that you just ignore what's going on in the market. Because there are so many people who provide fake news about where the market's going. And when I say fake news, I know they don't know. But human nature is we love to predict things. And, 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 and in the predicting of things, we might look smart, we might look dumb, but if we look smart, we enjoy it. We bathe in the, in, in, in the, in the adulation that you called a market term. Boy, you really know something. Good for you. But it's fake. And not to, there's no reason to make that a part of your investment strategy. So you ignore all the Wall Street noise, which leads to another, another myth, another lie. And it's the Wall Street crooks who make all the money. It's easy to believe that when you, when, when you see that in the 2008, that huge bear market and all that, those, those, those crooks, 
How many of those crooks went to prison? What kinds of fines did they impose on people for screwing the public? Well, as you know, almost none. And the government came in, that would be you and, and, and I. We came in and we, and we bailed them out. Now, yes, they may have paid us back, but if they hadn't been able to pay us back, we would have been stuck with that bill, right? But here's the reality. Here's the truth. Yes, there are Wall Street crooks. And yes, many of them make millions and billions of dollars. But you don't have to feed the kitty. You don't have to be any part of that. Now, in a way, you'll be a little tiny part of it, but when you put your money into an index fund, for example, and the index fund makes very, very little, then you are, in fact, getting virtually almost all of the profit. You're not making Wall Street crooks rich. Let people sell expensive mutual funds to clients. Let them uh, sell mutual funds that have high loads. Let them sell products that have commissions of 10 more or more percent. You won't be doing that. You won't be doing that because you're not going to pay those commissions. You're not going to pay those expense ratios. You're not going to invest in those securities that they make sound so good. It's just like the tobacco companies making cigarettes sound like a good deal. No, you're going to keep that money in your pocket and not give it to them. And uh, number eight. As far as I'm concerned, investing is no different than going to Vegas. It's just one big gamble. I might as well buy lottery tickets. Now, by the way, that lie or that myth is, in fact, costing people millions. Because in many states, people buy lottery tickets at a rate that if instead they simply put their money into, by the way, they may be both buying lottery tickets and putting money into the market, but I suspect there are lots of people who are putting money into lottery tickets that are not doing the disciplined saving that would give them a chance, in fact, to have a million-dollar payday. Investing, and I've covered it many times here in this podcast before, it's not a gamble. It's not like going to Vegas. Uh, I just went to Vegas to make a presentation uh, a couple months ago, and, uh, and, and, and I did not spend any money at the blackjack table. Okay, I put a few coins, and I mean just a few dollars worth, into a uh, poker machine. I did that, yes. But... Uh, I did it with a very, very small amount of money. I did not spend the evening going down and playing uh, uh, craps or blackjack. By the way, that stuff's all fun. But I know the end result. The end result is 
I'm going to lose. This system is built for people who buy lottery tickets to lose. But the fact that somebody, in fact, does hit and win the lottery keeps people coming back with the hope that they will have the good luck and be financially secure. But investing is not that way. It is not, if done properly, a big gamble. And finally, number nine, I've got plenty of time to invest. I'll get started later when I've got more money to put away. Or it may even be to put any money away at all. Uh, And the cost of waiting is high. I mean, real cost. Because in order to have the amount of money you need to retire, if you start in your 20s, you can put away an amount of money that if you wait until your 30s, you're going to have to put away twice as much starting in your 30s as you would have had to have put away if you had just started in your 20s because then you'd be able to continue to invest relatively small amounts of money. But the longer you wait, the more that you're going to have to put in to get to where you needed to go. And here's what I worry about. You know, we might have the good fortune when we're in our 20s and 30s to earn a fair amount of money and to have a chance to put that money away. And then just about the time that uh, you think you have a lot of money to invest, other things pop up. Got a health problem. Got a child problem. Got a divorce problem. There are a mountain of things that can come along to uh, claim rights to that money you thought you were going to save for retirement. You do it now, as soon as you can. Because starting that discipline, even if it's a relatively small amount, and that every year you add more to it, particularly particularly if your company is matching some portion of your 401k, huge numbers of people in 401k plans do not even put in enough to have the company match. The free money, the free money. And it's not just the free money today, it's what that free money grows to over 40 years. But those people who don't put the money in have more important things to do with that money. And that is simply a choice. Whether we blow it, we give it away to charity, or we invest it. We almost always, not always, but almost always have that choice. So there, I didn't quite get to, uh, oh, let's see, I got to nine. I I was close. But the fact is, I think I've, (laughs) I think you've probably had enough, and I think I've probably had enough. It's always fun to be with you. I always hope that there'll be some tidbit in there that will be helpful to you or somebody that you care about. And, uh, well, gosh, I hope we have this book done 
by the uh, uh, by the end of the first quarter. I really want to have this uh, for you available uh, to be able to uh, to provide to others in your in your family. And uh, so uh, we will be back. I'll uh, be in better spirits. I'll be healthier, and I'll be stronger. Thank you. Bye now. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.